Craig said Friday night that uh, he got you guys at the end of a hard week at work and end of a hard day at work and traveling and everybody was kind of blitzed out and then you guys get your brains exploded yesterday and so I get you on Sunday morning or you get me on Sunday morning so uh, my sympathies with that but um, I've got my Tiger Woods fourth round Sunday closing red and black color scheme so so we'll see how it goes and it's not Josh it's uh, Jonathan Kaler and um, I know it looks like Kohler but it's got an E in there, it's K-O-E-H. I don't have any interest in small engines or toilets, except for a couple of times a day. And I don't have near the money that those guys in Wisconsin, the Kohlers in Wisconsin have. So, and they don't have an E in their name. And they, if you want to go all German on me, it's Kühler. And so Americans don't know how to put the umlaut over the O, so we've got to put an E in there. And those guys in Wisconsin, if they were real Germans, they'd be Kühler too. So anyway, you can say Kaler. If I could tell jokes, I'd tell you about the guy that was um, in a swimming pool with a man-eating shark. And when he got out, he looked around for the guy that pushed him in. And uh, I'm kind of still looking around for the guy that pushed me in here, Chris Martin. And um, so anyway, you've got me. Well, uh, before we get started in the text, I, wanna, I want us to agree on three things. One is that eternal security, or otherwise known as not losing your salvation, is a given. A person cannot lose his salvation. The texts we look at this morning, a couple of them will kind of raise that, that question, or have, been, have raised that question with people. But we're not going to even consider that. That's not what they're teaching, and I don't even go there. But in that context, I want to distinguish between professing Christians and possessing Christians. Professors are those who claim or profess Jesus as their Savior, but they may or may not be a possessor. Possessors are those who are otherwise known as the elect who possess salvation. Now, all possessors are professors, but not all professors are possessors. And you may be more familiar with the terms visible church, uh, and those are the professors, and the invisible church, and they are the possessors. So in other words, what I'm trying to get across is that not everyone who's saved, who says he's saved is, is a Christian is going to heaven. The second agreement I want us to come to is that um, it's kind of related to the first. And we've already talked about this weekend. In fact, <clears throat> pretty much everything I'm going to say, you've already heard this weekend. So just relax. So no one can know with certainty that he is one of the elect or the possessor. Only God knows who the possessors are. And that's basically all. He's the only one that knows this side of the grave. You can and you should have assurance of salvation, but assurance is not certainty. It's not the same thing. And God wants you to have assurance, but he will not give you that assurance, I mean that certainty, um, because that would rob you of faith. And that's how we please God, according to Hebrews 11.6. The third thing is that as you listen to what I say this morning, I would pray that you would pray that the Holy Spirit <clears throat> would uh, show you what he wants you to apply for yourself. And that you don't sit there and think, well, I wish Sam was here listening to this. The message is for you and only secondarily for someone else. So if you'll agree with me on those three things, we can kind of get through this somewhat efficiently. Um, it's interesting, you know, I think Craig talked Friday, uh, maybe Joe did, about how God orchestrates these retreats, the messages and so forth. And there's no uh, pre-retreat collaboration. But God orchestrates these retreats. I've seen it over and over and over again. And so... Um, that's why I say you already heard what I'm going to say pretty much. But I am taking a page from Joe Bradford's talk on apathy because I also heard that, you know, the, the PowerPoints have not gotten any better over the years. And I don't have a PowerPoint, and I was so apathetic, I don't even have an outline for you. So, uh, but there's a, mad, a method to that because I'd like for you to just sit back, relax. If you're obsessive, compulsive, and left brain like me, you want to take every note down. Just sit back, and if God gives you a point to remember it, write it down, and I'll repeat things through the talk too, so you'll have more than one chance to get it down. <clears throat> For those of you who have children, <clears throat> you know that when you warn your children of consequences for their behavior, your warnings have to have teeth, right? 
You probably heard the illustration of the mom who uh, tells little Johnny to stop doing something and he ignores her. So she gets a little bit louder and Johnny still ignores her and she gets a little bit louder and it goes on like that until she gets to a decibel level at which point he realizes the next step she's going to take action. At that point he decides to obey. So little Johnny is basically entertained by this the whole time. <clears throat> and until then her warnings, the mom's warnings are basically for show. They don't have any teeth behind them, and Johnny gets entertained in the process. Well, in this process, the mom has basically undermined her authority. And we know that if Johnny continues on a road like that, that the consequences for his behavior get worse and worse as he, get, as he gets older. So if we understand this dynamic as, as parents uh, ourselves, or maybe we were even little Johnnies ourselves, it shouldn't surprise us that God, our Heavenly Father, warns us and that the threat behind his warnings have substance. He doesn't give us these warnings as bluster. He doesn't use hyperbole for effect. He means what he says. So let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, uh, what we have not give us, what we know not teach us, and what we are not make us. For the sake of Jesus, amen. Did I leave a water bottle back there? <clears throat> so the Epistle to the Hebrews is a very challenging book. Um, it's probably, in my estimation, thank you, one of the top two densest books in the Bible, behind or right up there with the Romans. And there's um, it's challenging for other reasons too. Among them, it's written to a group of people who come out of a, a religious and socioeconomic culture that was hundreds of years old. And um, that culture involved multiple rules and restrictions and a very intricate structure. And most of all, most of those had been rendered obsolete by their newfound faith in, in, uh, in Christ. But the letter is also difficult because there's so much Old Testament imagery and symbolism that's not only hard to uh, to understand, but may seem to have little relevance to us today as, as men, Gentiles in the 21st century. But I would say as a side note that when I went through Hebrews for the first time, uh, it really opened up the Old Testament for me. It was amazing what, the, what that does. But the letter warns Jewish professors, remember what a professor is, who either had shrunk back or were in the process of shrinking back for safety behind the Old Covenant, behind the Mosaic Law, um, because Christians were being persecuted by the Roman government. And so they saw an opportunity to take refuge behind the Old Covenant, their Judaism, to escape persecution as Christians. And so that's pretty much what the letter, the epistle is about, is, is addressing that issue. So the question is, how sharp are the teeth of the warnings in Hebrews and how serious is the threat. <clears throat> well, the stakes involved go like this. The stakes involved are what's, what's going on here. You can have prayed to receive Christ. You can be baptized in his name. You can be devoted to his cause. You can suffer abuse on his behalf. And you can still find yourself in hell. So the stakes are your eternal destiny. Now we're going to be looking at five dangers or warnings um, in the book. People number those in different ways and so forth, but we're going to be covering five. <clears throat> and I'll repeat these through, so if you don't get all five down right now, don't worry about it. We're going to be, we're going to call the first one the danger of drifting to neglect of salvation, which leads to neglect of salvation. The danger of disbelief, which leads to the hardening of the heart. The danger of departing from the gospel the danger of despising the Son of God, the blood of the covenant, and the spirit of grace, and the danger of denying Him who speaks from heaven. So again, I'll, I'll be repeating those, so don't get anxious if you don't get all those down. The goal of the letter is to encourage, warn, admonish the readers, the recipients, to hold fast, to endure, to have patience. That's a recurring theme through the letter. And he gives some solutions, the author gives some solutions to avoiding the dangers. He tells the readers to pay attention to what they've heard, 
to avoid isolation, to encourage one another day after day, to believe, and that belief should be expressed in obedience, and to see to it. Now, the see to it has four parts, and we'll get to that in a minute. So, our first warning comes from Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. If Jonathan, you want to read those three verses for us? Absolutely. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, then every violation and act of disobedience received a just punishment. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now again, as an example of the uh, divinely inspired correlation, it's interesting that Josh's uh, uh, devotion was on distraction because we have the word drift here. kind of gives the impression of distraction. So the, the author says to pay attention to what they have heard so that they don't drift. Now, one of the brothers calls me a kraut because of my German heritage. And uh, if I were going German on you, I would say Achtung, because Achtung in German means attention. And that's basically what he's saying here is to pay attention to what you've heard before. Well, what is it they have heard? Well, that's in chapter 1, where the author talks about the prophets, the angels, the word, I mean, uh, the, uh, Moses and the law, and how all those are inferior to Jesus, that God has now spoken, fi- spoken finally in his final word, which is Jesus. Jesus is superior to all those things. So the warning, he says, is not to drift, because if you drift, you're going to neglect. What does he mean by drifting? Well, the word drift means to pass by like a ship on a river, or to slip gradually, uh, almost unnoticed. You might want to imagine yourself uh, in a little John boat on the Niagara River with your fishing line, trailed out, and you're not paying attention, just drifting with the current, watching the scenery, and you neglect to see the warning signs that says danger ahead. And by the time you hear the roar of the falls, because of your neglect, it's too late to escape the consequences. <clears throat> so drifting for the professor can start with a very slow, barely perceptible movement, such as a slight denial of your conscience. Maybe the Holy Spirit convicts you of something, but your conscience, you want to override your conscience, and it doesn't seem to be that big a deal to you. Or maybe you redefine sin. You might override the conviction of your conscience because the circumstances you think justify it. Or you might rationalize some sin because you think God wants you to be happy, or everyone else does it, or God will forgive me if I do this. I was really struck by Nathaniel's comment last night that how dangerous it is to entertain that thought that, okay, I'm going to do this, but God's going to forgive me. That's the first little step toward drifting. It could very well be that what you're going to do or you're thinking about doing is invisible to others. Or if it is in public view, it's considered insignificant, and maybe even by those in the church. The next key word is neglect. He says that we must pay attention so that we don't drift and thereby neglect salvation. Now the author here uses a technique where he uses a, uh, compares by going from the lesser to the greater when he says that under the old covenant, the Mosaic law, transgression and disobedience were dealt with justly. But he says under the new covenant, we can be even more sure of consequences for neglecting salvation. And he does this several times in the letter, he uses his technique. And Jesus does the same thing in the Gospels, too, if you'll notice that. Well, the question is, how does one neglect salvation? <clears throat> to me, neglect is kind of a mild word. It's, it's kind of like there's something there, but it doesn't really get your attention. You kind of ignore it, kind of like those extra 10 pounds and Christmas holidays that you gained. But... Uh, a few weeks ago, we had some pretty cold temperatures down in my neck of the woods in, in Louisiana. We had temperatures in the mid-teens for several days. didn't get above freezing. And some people neglected to protect their pipes, and they had a rude awakening when their pipes burst. So they suffered the consequences of their neglect. Neglecting salvation is essentially refusing to heed God's message. In the case of the Hebrews, the professors in, in the book, 
it's essentially uh, leaving the new covenant for the, the, the gospel, for the old covenant or the law. For us in the 21st century, it's basically the same, but it may look a little different. We sometimes pray a prayer of salvation, and we're told we're saved by grace. And Jesus says no one can snatch us out of his hand, not even us. So with that security in mind, we go our merry way and we neglect the entailments or the expectations of our salvation. We're told that grace is a free gift, that we don't do anything to earn it. And that's true. But did you know that grace in the biblical times had a little bit of a twist to it? Grace meant a free gift, but it came with expectations. Now suppose I was a contractor in the first century of Palestine and I invited the local real estate agency head to come over for dinner and some entertainment. It's a free gift. I'm not telling him he has to pay anything to come. It's totally free, but it comes with the expectation that he's going to look favorably upon my company when it comes time for him to start his new neighborhood development. When I was practicing family medicine, we had pharmaceutical reps who would come in and bring uh, pins and little trinkets to entertain us when they would uh, plug their drug and sometimes they would uh, host little fancy dinners at restaurants and invite us to come. didn't cost anything. They would talk about their, their product but the expectation that went along with the free gift was that we would remember their product when it came time to prescribe medicine. So God does save us freely, but there are strings attached. An old navigator by the name of Skip Gray used to say that God did not save you so that you could be a smarter sinner. He saved you to be a holy saint. And if you remember, I think it was Craig Friday that quoted Jesus when he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So grace comes with expectations. The author of Hebrews says that if there's justice for disobedience under the old covenant, the Mosaic law, then the author removes any wiggle room for those who neglect the new covenant. Some aspects or some signs of neglect and, and ways or, or strategies to combat uh, neglect. Uh, number one is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 mentions the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Well, it might help to survey that in, your, in our own lives. How are we doing with the fruit of the Spirit? Are we quenching the Spirit? Are we not allowing the Word in so that the Spirit can produce the fruit? Are you grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit by sin? And that kind of leads into my next point, to stop sinning. Do you hate sin? Do you see sin as God sees it? Well, sin is fun. I mean... Why would we do sin if it wasn't fun? Do you go off on an extended sin binge, or do you come to your senses quickly after you sin and repent and ask for forgiveness? A friend of mine counsels young people on what kind of spouse they um, should look for. And he says, find somebody who hates sin the way God hates it and is self-correcting. Meaning that if they fail or fall, as we all do, do they immediately go to a course correction and get back on track, or do they go off the rails? Thirdly, take up your cross daily. And I believe uh, Winston quoted Luke 9, 23 and 24. For if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross daily, deny himself, and come after me. Whoever wishes, whoever, whoever wants to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake. He it is who finds it. I suspect, uh, well, many of us in here have heard of Walt Hendrickson, and we've talked about him a little bit, and he, he's a contributor to many of those books back there, but someone asked him once how he did all those things that he fit into his life, his intense study of the Word, prayer, ministry to many people, investing in his family. <clears throat> his response simply was, I elect against myself. I can't put it any simpler than that. I elect against myself. I rolled out of bed this morning about 3.30, which I regret is my current habit, and uh, got my running clothes on, looked at my phone, 27 degrees. 
27 degrees centigrade. No, it's Fahrenheit. <clears throat> so I said, do I want to get back in bed or do I want to stay inside where it's warm or do I want to hit the pavement? Well, I elected against myself, against my own desires, and went out and hit the pavement. <clears throat> Somewhat related to the last one, the gospel is not a one-time event. Yes, there is a, a time, a point in time when we pray uh, to receive Christ or we turn our allegiance to Jesus. But I would suggest that we preach the gospel to ourselves regularly, if not on a daily basis. I don't mean by that that we get saved over and over. You get saved one time. But it is a reminder to ourselves if we preach the gospel to ourselves regularly. It reminds us of the sacrifice of Jesus, that it was our sin that put him on the cross our identification with him and his death and resurrection and the forgiveness that he extends to us. So the summation of the first warning is the danger of drifting toward neglect. So for warning number two, we go to Hebrews chapter three verses, uh, chapter three verse seven through chapter four verse 13, and that's a lot of verses. And we're not gonna read all those for the sake of time, but I'm gonna have Jonathan read the pertinent verses there. <clears throat> Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 8. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if thou hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And do you want me to read the 12 through 15 as well? Yep. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And then 18 through uh, 4 or 6. Yes, sir. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And read uh, 4, 1 through 6. Oh, that's right. Okay, sorry about that. Um, Hebrews 4, 1 through 6. Therefore we must fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united with those who listened with faith. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my anger, they certainly shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in, in this passage, they certainly shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who previously had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Keep reading with 76 and 9 through 11. Uh, yeah, read seven, uh, yeah, read seven and nine through 11. Okay. Hebrews four, seven. He again sets a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And for if Joshua. And read verse nine, nine through 11. Yeah, that's right. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. Okay, thanks. So the warning is, do not harden your hearts. He says that four times in this passage, in case you didn't get it the first three times. Don't harden your hearts. Now the backdrop for this warning is the subject of rest. There are three different rests mentioned here. The first is the creation rest, which is mentioned in Genesis where God rested on the seventh day. Now he rested from the work of creation, but note that he didn't cease activity. He merely stopped creating. He didn't rest because he was tired. He merely ceased his work, and that was rest. The second one is the Canaan rest. <clears throat> and I think Nathaniel mentioned this last night. 
But this was the uh, episode at Kadesh Barnea. This was the rest that was promised to the nation of Israel upon their exit from Egypt. They came to Kadesh Barnea. They sent spies into the land of Canaan to, to check things out on a reconnaissance mission. They came back with a pessimistic report. There's giants in the land. We can't, we can't beat these guys. They're too strong for us. So the people did not believe God's promise that he would conquer their enemies before them. So they had hardened hearts and they had unbelief. That resulted in the deaths of everyone in the nation over the age of 20, except for Caleb and Joshua, over the next 40 years as they wandered in the desert. The third rest is the Sabbath rest, also known as the believer's rest. And that's the subject of some debate by different people on what that rest, what the Sabbath rest means. But what's not debatable is the author's warning that unbelief associated with a hardened heart will keep somebody from entering that rest. And I would suggest, and I could well be wrong, <clears throat> I've heard Jerry say that our propensity to be wrong works to our advantage, and if that's the case, then my advantage cup overflows. I could be wrong about this, but I think that the believer's rest is the final rest upon death or our entrance into the new heaven and the new earth. It's not real clear, but that's, that's what I would suggest. So some observations about this rest. He says in here it requires effort or diligence and obedience, but upon entering it, strife and cease, strife and pain cease. Now, the reason I think this is the correct interpretation is because of the cessation of work. He says that um, the one who enters this rest has ceased from his work as God also did from his. So it's kind of similar in that respect to the creation rest. I think this is probably the eternal rest that we see, get a picture of in Revelation 21.4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more mourning or death or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now it probably doesn't mean as it did as it did with the creation, as it did not mean with the creation rest. It does not mean a cessation of activity, but instead the absence of opposition. Can you imagine going for one day without opposition in your life? Hard to get my head around that. So a key characteristic of entering this rest, and this may get a little confusing, is perseverance, because as, as you read the New Testament, you get the picture of there's this, uh, only way I know to say it is an already but not yet perspective. In other words, we already have some things, but there's things that we haven't got yet, and they're all they're sometimes called the same thing. And so we have to enter the rest, but we only know that we have the rest when we persevere. We enter the rest in a sense when we are saved, but we don't realize the rest totally until we enter it on the other side of life. It's not a one-and-done event, but perhaps for most of us, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Now, there's a man by the name of Eugene Peterson who wrote a book back in, the, I think, the mid-'70s called um, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a book about discipleship. Well, I was interested to find that uh, that term actually comes from Friedrich Nietzsche. And uh, we also get the quote, God is dead and we killed him. Nietzsche gave us, gave us that quote, and I think he was an inspiration to Adolf Hitler. I'm not positive, so I'm not sure what Nietzsche meant by, that, by his quote, but this is what he said. The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. And I would suggest that that something which has made life worth living is... Um, in Revelation 21.4. <clears throat> the author says that the rest, the Sabbath rest, the believer's rest is for the people of God, in other words, the possessing Christians. And it's present and available for possessing Christians. I would also note that it seems that the opportunity to enter this rest is temporary. In other words, the door to that rest is not always open and was not always open for always. There could very well come a moment in a person's life when the opportunity has passed, and you won't know when that opportunity has passed. 
He says in verse 4 of chapter 4, the let, let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. So it seems like at a time, the promise of entering that rest is no longer there. Entering the rest requires hearing God's voice or his word and not hardening one's heart to it. The author warned the professors not to return to the protection of the old covenant in order to escape persecution. For us today, it's hearing the words of the new covenant, the gospel. But it's not just hearing the words, but it's also believing them. Note with me that the warning words in this passage are not passive, but they're active and under our control. Words like, do not harden, make every effort, be diligent, labor, strive. This, this is not for the faint of heart. It's not easy. <clears throat> the author refers to the Old Testament text and its mention of Israel provoking God in the wilderness. He says, do not harden your hearts as in the day when they provoked me. Another word for provoke is exasperate. I'm not sure I want to meet an exasperated master of the universe. So I would suggest that the antidote for provocation is fear, the fear of God. In the context of our warning, one might say that fearless disobedience results in a failure to enter the rest. Well, what are some signs of a hardening heart? <clears throat> I've got quite a list here, so bear with me as I go through these. Um, one sign of a hardened heart is forgetting about God and forgetting that one day we will meet Him. It's very hard to stay on a path of, of belief, I mean unbelief, and at the same time realize that one day you're going to meet Him and give an account. Another sign of a hardened heart is laziness. Um, could be apathy, maybe. Marked by a loss of private holiness, a loss of private prayer, a loss of the curbing of lust and the loss of sorrow for our sin. A disinterest in public worship, it doesn't mean we don't attend public worship, it just means that we lose interest in such. We may find ourselves picking out faults in the lives of others. When we're fixing our attention on Jesus and taking care to guard our hearts, we will notice the planks in our own eyes before we notice the speck of dust in the lives of another. Association with the godless. Not only will we avoid lively Christians, we will increasingly associate with the godless, not necessarily sitting down face to face with them, but taking their counsel, maybe seeking out trashy magazines or improper movies, immersing ourselves in social media. We've talked some this weekend about addiction to, to media, the news. Um, Recall the words of Psalm 1, 1 and 2. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. <clears throat> Another sign of a hardening heart is secret sins which hold us in our grip, hold us in their grip. The guy who discipled me in college used to talk to me about pet sins those little things that are privately ours and which we're very reluctant to talk about with God or give up. They seem nearly impossible to overcome, but they're not secret, they're not private, and they're not harmless. Our sin has cosmic effects. I would refer you to chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews. Think about something there. We um, don't really have time to go into that, but that's a a staggering chapter to read and to consider the cosmic effects of our sin. Another sign of a hardening heart is the, as, our, as the process continues and our hearts become harder, we will begin to sin more openly. We become like those who see themselves as wise. And Jeremiah addresses those people in, ver, in chapter 8, verse 12. He says, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, declares the Lord. With the maturation of the hardening process, the consequences will become visible to all. 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 says, But the Spirit explicitly says 
that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Similar to Jeremiah's reference, hardening in the heart may uh, entail viewing the commandments of God as optional. Do you view some New Testament commandments as not applying to you because they are for another time or another culture? Are you angry or frustrated because of trials in your life? In your view, is that God wants you to be happy? James 1.2 says, count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Are you approaching God on your terms or His? Do you see yourself as His slave, bought at a price with no rights of your own? Is everything truly His? Or are you holding back? Is part of your bank account off limits to Him? Does He have veto power over your schedule? Can He have your wife, your kids, or your grandkids when He wants them back? So our first warning, as I said, was the danger of drifting toward neglect. We can summarize our second warning as the danger of disbelief and thereby hardening your heart. So our third warning is, uh, comes from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 8. And we're not going to read that whole passage either. Um, we'll read some pertinent verses. So Jonathan, if you'd read 4 through 8 of chapter 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and produces vegetation useful for those who sake it as uh, it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Okay, thanks. You know, I apologize, I forgot. Are there any questions on the first two warnings? I, I blew right by that. I meant to stop and see if there's any questions or anything that wasn't clear. Probably a lot of it's not clear, but... <laughs> okay, so this is warning number three. The charge that's leveled here is dullness and immaturity, dullness of hearing and immaturity. That's in the last part of chapter 5. So these are professing Christians. They're very familiar with the Old Covenant, but they have also come to understand the Gospel and profess faith in Jesus and the New Covenant. But instead of going on from there, they've regressed. Now the marks of those who fall away, as he talks about in chapter 6, he uses the words tasted, partaken, enlightened. Those all refer to professors, but they don't guarantee possession. They're emblematic of a participation, not possession. Now, the author's audience may look like Christians and sound like Christians, but at some point, he says, they have fallen away. They have abandoned the new covenant. And because they have done so, there is no repentance, because they have shunned the provision that God has given for repentance, and they've returned back to the old and obsolete system of the law. Now, falling away here is not the same word that's used for apostasy elsewhere, but that is what's talked about here. That's, that's the meaning of what's going on here. It means abandonment or rejection. So falling away is the opposite of holding fast or enduring. Remember our, we read in chapter 3, he talked about holding fast. And that's the opposite of falling away. We don't like the idea of perseverance because we want what we want and we want it now. Well, how do you know that you've persevered? Well, you only know that you will persevere when you have persevered. Falling, falling away for us in the 21st century is, in essence, the same thing as it was in the Hebrews' time. It just looks different. Since retreat to the old covenant is, not, covenant is not really an issue for us, we still can and do abandon the gospel and salvation. Well, what does it mean to crucify to oneself the Son of God again and put Him to open shame? This is a very difficult, for me, <clears throat> wording. The 
professors have abandoned Christ, the new covenant, they've turned their back on Christ and all that the new covenant entails. And instead, they're basically identifying and exhibiting and representing those who crucified Christ and exposed him to public shame. As long as they persist in such actions, there is no repentance. While the fallen one um, is engaged in his fallenness, there is no more repentance. They can't. There is no place to go for repentance. But that doesn't mean that's a permanent state. If he comes to his senses, convicted of his sin, and stops sinning and asks for forgiveness, is broken and repentant, he can be restored. There's only two places to go for forgiveness, the throne of grace, which we see mentioned in chapter 4, verse 16, and the cross. If you reject the cross, the throne of grace is not available to you. So you might reasonably ask, can one fall away and enjoy the time of his rebellion and then decide to come back later? Well, that's a good question. We'll consider that in a minute. So a couple of observations. The falling away is marked by either the absence of fruit or useless fruit, like thorns and thistles. You cannot participate in the externals of Christianity and abandon the faith and expect anything other than thorns and thistles, which he says are useless and good only for burning. And this thought occurred to me the other day, and I haven't really thought through it well, so feel free to shoot it down. But <clears throat> So if thorns and thistles are mentioned here as bad fruit, useless fruit. And if you think back to the parable of the soils, one of the soils has thorns and thistles, and it chokes out the seed, which is the seed of the Word of God. To me, it's a scary thought to think that you could be a thorn and thistle and contribute toward choking out of the, 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 the Word of God in another's life. I never made that connection before, and I'm not sure it's a valid connection, but it's something I've been thinking about. Now, one of the strategies that he mentions here is found in, chapter, in verse 9 and following. He says he's convinced of better things concerning them, things that concern salvation. And he talks about the work that they have done in ministering to the saints and continuing to minister. And so... <clears throat> One of the strategies I think that he mentions here is continuing on in what they were doing. And, you know, there were saints who were being put in jail, losing their property, etc. And apparently they had done some ministry with them in the past. And he's saying to continue to do that. It's not just the ministering to the saints, but if they were to do that, they were to identify the end as Christians. So he's basically saying, you know, leave the old covenant behind and go back to what you were doing before because that identifies you with the covenant community. <clears throat> so again, we're going to review. The first warning was the danger of drifting toward neglect. The second one is the danger of disbelief and hardening your heart. The third one can be summarized as the danger of departing from the gospel. So if you're still with me, we're going to go to warning number four. And uh, I would say that warnings three and four are probably the most severe, and probably warning four maybe is the most severe of the five. So, Jonathan, if you'd read uh, chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. Yes, sir. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It scares me just to read this passage. Before we launch into that, again, were there any questions on the other three warnings? that I didn't give you a chance to ask about. Anything that didn't make sense? Okay. Well, as he did with the first warning, he uses the argument of the lesser to the greater in comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. He says in Deuteronomy that, that turning away from God and turning to other gods was punishable by death. And he says, the, the, he's talking about willful sin here, and the willful sin that he mentions is not the sin that we all do every day, 
I don't know about you, but much of that's willful on my part. So he's not talking about that here. He's talking about the willful sin of leaving the gospel behind and going back to the old covenant, their old, the old ways, the obsolete system of abandoning Christ. So the ones who do that incur a more severe punishment than the ones he's talking about in Deuteronomy. So as for the readers of the book of, of the letter of the Hebrews, it is for us, though we don't return to the old covenant, if we, having received the knowledge of the truth, which is the gospel, if we then reject that knowledge, the gospel, then we are without remedy. He uses the words or the term expression trampling underfoot the Son of God and regarded as, as unclean the blood of the covenant. I would suggest that this is the antithesis of what Paul says in um, Philippians chapter 3. Probably this passage is probably familiar to you. He says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So you've probably heard that, or another translation may say dung instead of rubbish. And the Greek word there is actually skubo, which means dung. So that's Paul's perspective. And I think the author here is basically taking the opposite perspective when he says that these people have trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. They're counting um, Christ to be rubbish for the sake of escaping persecution. Hard to imagine you would count Christ as rubbish, as scuba. Are you counting Christ to be rubbish for the sake of something else? Aren't we really talking about idolatry, which is putting something else in the place of God? He uses the term insulting the spirit of grace. It sounds a lot to me like the unpardonable sin that Jesus talks about in Matthew 12 where the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is declared to be the unpardonable sin. <clears throat> blasphemy is showing disrespect to anything that is holy. So to go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth is to reject the Holy Spirit. Receiving the knowledge of the truth indicates an understanding of the gospel and what it means. So to have this understanding and then reject it is to insult the spirit who reveals it. I would refer anyone who says that the God of the New Testament is a gentle, loving, nonviolent God to verses 29 through 31. I know we're not in New England, but we're kind of close, I guess. And hopefully some of you, not most of you, have heard of the man named, by the name of Jonathan Edwards, the uh, theologian from the mid-18th century. If you've never heard his sermon or read it, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I highly recommend you get a copy. You can get it free on the internet, a PDF file. But I commend it to you. The God that's described in that sermon is anything but the combination of Santa Claus and Mr. Rogers that we send, that many people consider the God of the New Testament to be. So some strategies that he gives to avoid this warning. Uh, verses 24 and 25, before he gets into the warning, he talks about encouraging one another to not, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I think that's been mentioned this weekend too. Whatever expression of the body is appropriate um, for the purpose of stimulating and encouraging one another, that's what we should be doing. He goes on after the warning in verses 32 and following, talking about the love of the brethren, again, talking about visiting the, the people who are persecuted in prison, who have lost their property and lost their possessions. 
<clears throat> if we depart from the brethren, that may be a sign that we are professor only and not a possessor. And again, he talks about in verse 36, endurance or perseverance. It's a vital ingredient of our being a possessor. If we shrink back, God has no pleasure in us, he says in verse 36. So again, the forewarning so far, don't drift, or the danger of drifting and leading to neglect, the danger of disbelieving and hardening your heart, the danger of departing and falling away. I would summarize the fourth one is the danger of despising the Son of God, His blood, and the Spirit. <clears throat> Any questions so far? Yes, sir. You I uh, I'm, I'm one warning back. Warning three. You touched sure. on the throne of grace versus the cross. Do you mind elaborating on that? <clears throat> I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that Jesus is at the right hand of God, and uh, God is on the throne, and uh, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for us. He's our high priest. He is our high priest. He was. It's not that he was our high priest. He is our high priest. That's where we go, to the throne of grace. And the cross is in the past. Does that make sense? Or would you disagree with that, or... Anything else? <clears throat> Warning number five. Well, we've gotten through the, the uh, molasses part of the, the message, the sticky and thick part. And we're on the home stretch, so if you can kind of bear with me for a few more minutes. So, uh, Jonathan, if you'd read uh, verses 20, uh, 15 through 29 of chapter 12. Or not the whole thing, but Said, the pertinent verses. Okay, it says uh, 15 through 16 and then verse 25. Hebrews 12, 15 through 16 and then verse 25. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that there be no sexually immoral or godless person like a sow who sold his own birthright for a single meal. And then verse 25 is, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less we, will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Okay, thanks. The fifth warning to me seems to be carry a little bit less severe language, but it's really no less stark in its conclusion. Um, in that there's no escape for ignoring these warnings. And I would suggest that it might even be a summation of the previous four warnings in a way. The warning here is kind of a four-parter, uh, each part beginning with see to it. So in verse 15 it says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. So the readers are basically warned that they don't find themselves in the other four warnings, having been exposed to the grace of God and salvation, the knowledge of the truth. The second one is the understood see to it. It says, I would say, see to it that they're not bitter. He says, no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. So I would say, we could say, see to it that they are not bitter. Bitterness is a poison that you swallow, hoping that the other person dies. It's the product of being frustrated in obtaining what we want. It's the product of either a real or supposed uh, ill treatment by somebody else. Biblically literate people understand that the one who brings suffering in our lives is always God. So it requires that we understand that the correction or testing that God brings into our life is for our good. Gratitude and bitterness cannot coexist. I would suggest there's two aspects of bitterness. Usually the one who is bitter is the last one to realize it. He may say he's angry or frustrated, but rarely will he admit to being bitter. Others can see it in him, but he cannot see it in himself. 
Secondly, the author says many become, many become defiled. Make sure that doesn't happen. I would suggest that bitterness cannot rest. It needs an audience. The bitter person cannot wait to share it with somebody else. Let me tell you about the raw deal I got. Man, can you believe the way I was treated over there? Can you believe what that guy did to me? Because others hear only one side of the story, they are drawn in and they become advocates for the bitter person on their behalf. So many become defiled by the bitterness of another person. It's interesting, the author seems to allude to Deuteronomy 29.18. It reads like this. Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Interesting that that's, that's mentioned in Deuteronomy. The context of this Old Testament text is significant since it deals with idolatry and apostasy from the covenant community. Maybe those among the readers of the, of the letter were jettisoning their confession of Christ and they were causing friction within the community and the relationships were breaking down. And that was the defilement maybe that the author was speaking about. <clears throat> the third C to it, see to it there's no one like Esau. He considered his birthright as of no value. He gave away his position of authority, which was rightly his, and the double portion of, an, of his inheritance, which was rightly his as a firstborn son. So basically he could fill his belly with a bowl of stew. Yeah, Philippians talks about those whose God is their belly. <clears throat> As adopted sons, we are co-inheritors with Christ. The author is warning us not to emulate Esau, who considered of little to no value what was his by virtue of being the firstborn son. We are warned not to devalue our position as sons of God. Fourthly, see to it, this is verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So it appears that there's a bit of a trap door through which there's no retreat. Jerry said that um, there's two exits from the planet death and the trap rapture. So that's a trap door that we're all going to go through. But there are other trap doors. It says in uh, verse 17 that Esau sought for repentance, or found a, he found a place for repentance when he sought for, uh, for acceptance. It was too late. He had gone through a trap door that he couldn't go back through. Genesis 6.3 says that God will not strive with man forever. So the danger is that there's a trap door that we may go through, and we don't know where it is or when it is, and it's shut behind us forever. When we die, we will receive the sum of the investment of our lives on earth without the opportunity to change it. <clears throat> so there's three great truths I think stand out in this paragraph. Number one, the possessor, hopefully that's all of us in here, inherits a kingdom which is eternal and cannot be moved. Elsewhere in the passage, it talks about what God's going to do. He talks about the shaking of the earth from Mount Sinai, and he says he's going to shake heaven and earth, but some things will remain. So our kingdom is eternal, and it cannot be moved. The professor is warned lest in his assumed security he becomes presumptuous with God. Just because you say the prayer, walk the aisle, get baptized, as I said at the beginning, you can still go to hell. Thirdly, the surety of God's judgment, even in the presence of grace. The last word in 28, verse 28, is all. But verse 29 clearly demonstrates that there's a place for fear in the life of the Christian. I would suggest that fear and hope are two sides of the same coin. So to summarize our fifth warning, there's the danger of denying him who speaks from heaven.
So just some parting uh, applications or strategies to Ron. <clears throat> Before you wrap that up, uh, just I'm back on warning number four. Sure. Um, I seem to understand you to say that uh, 1026 is really warning against this specific sin of them, of the Hebrews returning back. I've always read that as being a generalized warning against presumptuous, unrepentant sin, and I just wanted you to maybe talk to that a little bit more. I don't know if I have the have, I'm not drawing, I'm not uh, remembering the text right offhand. You want to read that for me? Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Oh, I'm sorry. You said 1026, Ron? I'm sorry. I, I, missed, I thought you said 36. I'm sorry. So say your question again. I'm sorry. Don't go to the, don't go to the front. I'll, I'll take care of it. Right, okay. I see what you're saying now. Yeah, I think that um, if you were to broaden that to general sin... Um, where would our hope be? That's one response to what you're saying. I got another one. Go ahead, though. Right. So I, I agree with that, but the point there, the key words to me were have always been unrepentant and presumptuous. I'm going to sin, and God's going to forgive me, and I don't repent for it. Where do you see that? Um, I don't. It's a way of me trying to make sense out of a very difficult verse. So. Right. And I could be wrong, but I, that's how I make sense of it, is that it's contextually limited to rejection of the gospel. Okay. You said I you could had, be wrong. You said you had another one, too? That was basically, basically okay. it, yeah. So. <clears throat> Good question. So that's a tough... This, these third and fourth warnings are really, really tough. Jonathan, to, to follow up on what you're sharing there, could you maybe make the argument that what Ron's asking about could lead to what you're talking about? That it could it could start with that presumption. It could start with that. Well, I can do this because there's forgiveness, and and before we know it, that's the slippery slope that we could be going down. Absolutely, you can go back to drifting, neglecting, disbelief, hardening your heart. I mean, I think all of that would feed into. That makes sense. Yeah, that's how I would answer that. Dan? <clears throat> to answer for Ron, I don't know if I'm uh, agreeing with you or not. I always took the word willful as that I know what I'm doing. So that I don't know if that helps or if it's still we get the same answer, but that's, that's how I understood the word. You get the same answer from me because I, I have the same problem. Yeah. I mean, I... On the reading and the face of it, that's the conclusion I would come to. But reading in context and considering the alternative of I sin willfully every day, where's my hope? And and the consequences of that that he outlines later in the in the paragraph, and again in the context of what's going on here, that's the conclusion I came to. So, good question. It's a it's a good dilemma. I mean, it's a reasonable dilemma. Okay, so let me just give us a few quick parting strategies, and some of which I've already kind of mentioned. Hold fast, persevere, keep on keeping on, don't give up. Second Corinthians three five or thirteen five says to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Confess your sins regularly. We used to call it keep short accounts with God. Don't wait until your sins pile up and you feel like you need to haul the whole stinking mess before God. If you mess up, fess up. Be clean. Give thanks in everything. Boy, so important. Being thankful is a recognition of, number one, the sovereignty of God and His love for you. 
A consistently thankful person will avoid an attitude of anger and bitterness. So I'm going to stop there, but what I'd like to do is, I don't know where everybody is in here spiritually. I don't know if you're a possessor or a professor, and nobody knows if they're a possessor, but I don't know where you are, if you're drifting or if you're hardening your heart. Maybe you're operating on all 12 cylinders and things are going peachy keen. But be aware that you could blow a gasket somewhere along the line. So I'd like to take a minute. I'd like for everybody to bow their heads. And I'm going to ask you to ask God if you need to do business with Him. We're just going to take a minute or two. And I'm not going to say a prayer. I'm just going to be quiet because I want you to do business with God in your own words, in your own way. Whether you need to thank Him for where you are or if you need to fess up, if you need to come to Christ, if you need to put your faith in Christ and be a new person. So just take a minute in silence, and I'll close this out in prayer.